Support for Under the Radar comes from Wellwithall. Wellwithall believes that self-care is community care. Premium products crafted for your daily wellness, from sleep support to heart health to your daily regimen. 20% of Wellwithall's profits are committed to leading the fight for health equity. They won't stop until it is truly Wellwithall. Under the Radar to me means authenticity, not being filtered. It's a window in on the local stories that touch our lives. And there's a huge void in the traditional media covering this new faces of Boston. You may not be looking for a particular story, but when you hear about it, you're engaged. Under the radar means ahead of the curve. It's also perspectives. How does this particular story affect a community or a neighborhood? I'm Callie Crossley. This week on Under the Radar with Callie Crossley, starting the graduation season off with a bang, the Community College of Rhode Island has said its farewells to the first set of graduates to complete its tuition-free program, Rhode Island Promise. 78% of New Hampshire residents support a statewide paid family leave program, but the state seems to be headed toward a political stalemate over the policy. And several colleges on the Cape and Martha's Vineyard will soon begin training a new generation of local offshore wind industry workers. It's our regional news roundtable. Later in the show, ever wonder how an idea becomes a sellable product? Despite the wealth of information available online, the lengthy process can be mystifying for small independent makers. How We Make Stuff Now is a new book by Jules Pieri, co-founder and CEO of the Boston-based Gromit, and it offers a comprehensive roadmap for ambitious makers with a vision. But first, Arnie Arneson, host of The Attitude with Arnie Arneson from WNHN. Hello, Arnie. How are you, Callie? I'm good. Philip Isle, Providence-based freelance journalist. Hi, Philip. Hi, Kelly. And Paul Pronovo, executive editor of the Cape Cod Times. Welcome back, Paul. It's been a minute. We haven't heard from you. <laughs> I know. Good to be back. Hello, Kelly and everyone. <laughs> good. So, Philip, I'm starting with you because I just like some good news. So this community <laughs> of college, community college of Rhode Island, tuition-free graduates. This is great. This was an idea from uh, the governor, and it seems to have worked. Right. So Rhode Island Governor Gina Raimondo, who is now in her second term, one of her signature initiatives is called Rhode Island's Promise, and that makes tuition and fees free for full-time associate degree candidates at Community College of Rhode Island, uh, CCRI, if they maintained a 2.5 GPA and earned 30 credits per year. And this was implemented, I think, two school years ago. And because this is an associate's degree program, the first cohort uh, of graduates recently graduated. Um, apparently, there were 285 students in the graduating class who were part of this Rhode Island Promise program. About 1,500 students had enrolled in the first cohort, and about 40% of that class uh, didn't return for the second year. And uh, by all accounts in the Providence Journal, it was a pretty joyous event. One uh, student who was graduating, a 19-year-old, told the paper, I'm the first to graduate with a higher ed degree from my family. My wow. family is pretty proud. My dad has been half crying all day. Another student said, without the promise, I wouldn't have been able to do it. I would have had to work more hours to be able to pay the tuition. So uh, certainly this is a good news moment for uh, Gina Raimondo and her administration and, and for these students. And apparently... Although I'm not sure the legislation is on a fast track, the governor is interested in bringing a similar program to Rhode Island College, another one of the public mm. schools. Mm. Uh, but so far, that hasn't happened yet. Well, here in Massachusetts, Paul, uh, Governor Baker kind of talks about it, but we haven't really gotten anywhere with it yet. 
No, we haven't gotten anywhere close to the level of what Rhode Island uh, has rolled out with uh, the Promise program. We all know, uh, and frankly, I'm living uh, as with one college graduate and one mm. teeing up, living what we're all reading about. We all know that the cost of college is astronomical. Kids are leaving school with incredible debt or their parents are saddled with debt. And uh, and it's really a drag on everything from the quality of life to the economy. So it must be addressed. I think that's why Governor Baker's talking about it. Let's see what action takes place. Uh, however, I will say here in Massachusetts, there are some programs that are appropriately enough under the radar um, <laughs> in terms of, mm -hmm. uh, you know, community colleges uh, have this great two-for-two two program where you can, you know, spend two years in a community college environment and then the two years at a, another state college and, uh, you know, it significantly reduces your cost, gets you ahead. The advancing uh, programs, and maybe we'll talk about this in a moment, that the community colleges have in general, um, mm -hmm. really, you it's not just sort of 13th grade anymore. It's it's a far more advanced education that you can get at a community college, anything from nursing degrees to engineering degrees to other other specialties. So uh, there are certain things that are happening, but uh, but nothing uh, on the lines of Rhode Island. I think this is going to get a lot of people's attention. Um, and what's happening in New Hampshire around this issue? Well, this is a wonderful story, but I actually live with someone who uh, works at one of the community colleges, so we actually talked mm. about this last night. And there were two uh, sort of nuggets in this story, Phil, that sort of were both good news stories, but this is the bad news story. Forty percent of the kids that, that got that sort of free ride to go to the community mm. colleges did not mm. show up for the second year. That's a concern. Right. And then there was another one that said at one point in time, the two-year graduation rate at CCRI had been as low as 4%. So I just want to mm. share something with everyone. What I love about community colleges they truly are the non-traditional mm -hmm. student. They come from every walk of life. They come from every kind of income background. And this is really their, their real opportunity. And with this kind of free opportunity, it even opens the door more. But the greatest challenge for community colleges is to figure out how to help these kids stay. And that is yeah. the biggest challenge. And, you know, I was lucky uh, as a kid, and I was lucky to be a mother. When my kids had issues, I helped them get through those issues. I understood them. I gave them the time. I had the knowledge. When these kids have issues, since they are the first generation or whatever, and they don't necessarily have the support system, one of the big challenges for colleges and especially these community colleges is to understand it's just not about opening the door, everyone. It's helping them mm. work through the system so they stick it out to get the degree. The beauty of this is, at least even if you don't get the degree after two years, you're not burdened with the debt. Imagine yeah. the kids that are paying for two years, and then they don't get complete the two years or whatever, and so they have the debt of the first year or the debt of the first year and a half, and yet they don't have the piece of paper. So I just want to sort of give everyone a heads up. As Raimondo and all these other governors are talking about these experiments, part of the experiment is investing in helping to make sure these kids get the stability they need so they can finish. Yeah, and, and just two things I would mention quickly. One, the New York Times recently did some excellent reporting on uh, the level of hunger yes. at yes. public schools yes, of higher ed uh, in you. the New York area. No, so it's that's everywhere. one thing yeah. that's... Yeah. Um, getting yeah. getting more attention. An interesting uh, statistic about this Rhode Island program that caught my eye, the CCRI and the Raimondo administration have pointed to the fact that since this program began, enrollment of low-income students has risen 143%, and enrollment of students of color is up 164% since 2017. Yeah. So we're gonna, you're correct. Uh, there are many institutions, by the way, uh, paying attention to the kinds of issues that you raised, Arnie, and there are actually some 
initiatives and programs to assist students as they go, first gens, as they call them. And so, and that has proven to be effective. I'm sure in their own research, they'll figure out that's what needs to happen. And then you'll have a you'll have more of a stick because these people are probably working and caring for families while they're doing it. So it's a whole other thing. All right, let me move on to an ongoing story down your way, Paul, the Mashpee Wampanoags and the struggle around uh, getting this approval from the U.S. House. It looked kind of dicey, but all prevailed in the end. We've talked about the Mashpee Wampanoag and their efforts to not only build casino, which I think grabs the headlines, but over, you know, literally decades to secure recognition by the federal government. And of course, as we always point out, the irony is these were the Native Americans who welcomed the first uh, white people from Europe. And the fact that they're not a recognized Indian nation is is just Mm -hmm. remarkable to them and, and to many others. So they have federal recognition. That's step one. Step two, because they do want to do certain things like build a casino. And and as we've talked about many times, they have property in Taunton that they've declared as reservation land. They can prove some ancestral connections to the property. I won't go through all the complicated legal maneuverings, but at the end of the day, the land reservation was taken away from them. And so what was filed by the local congressman, Bill Keating, was basically a legislative fix to, to reaffirm the idea that that land is there. Uh, I think it gets confused that it's going back to federal recognition and and reaffirming that. That's not necessary. It's actually the land that's necessary. And so this was moving along a track. On the surface, wouldn't think it would be controversial, but it is. The president uh, weighed in last week with basically policy by tweet, as we're all quite familiar with. He cast aspersions on the uh, on the legislation. He linked it to Elizabeth Warren, who, of course, is a presidential candidate and challenger and has, you know, if there's a controversy in her background right now, it's related to her Native American heritage. Uh, he used a pejorative that I won't repeat related mm-hmm. to her. And it spooked a lot of lawmakers who mm-hmm. had lined up to vote for this in the House. And so Keating and others withdrew it that day. And he said, we're going to be back at this, you know, basically wanted the dust to settle and re-educate the Congress about what this was all about. So it really wasn't great. And you can imagine the tribe collectively slapping their heads saying, what do we have to do here? Uh, yeah. and, and then ultimately this week, it did come up for a vote. It did pass in the House. Now it moves to the Senate. It's moving along, but it's surprising that they had even even that static. The vote was 275 to one. 46, Arnie. And I think this was purely political, if I can say, because of the connection to Elizabeth Warren. I mean, I think a lot of House representatives just decided, you know what, I just don't even want to deal with that. There you go. And it's also dueling casinos. I mean, come on, everyone. I mean, this, you know, you got lobbyists working. They're going, wait a minute, we don't want them. I mean, Mm. this is not about tribe. This is about casino. Let's let's be Mm. honest here. And then you see that the relationship of one of the lobbyists or one of the other casinos is related to sort of some of the people on Donald Trump's staff. (laughs) By the time I finished reading this, Paul, all I wanted to do was take a shower. I mean, I was just like, (laughs) this is so this is so unhealthy on so many different levels. And unfortunately, let's be honest here, everyone. Once you start talking about a casino, what you're talking about a casino with a Native American tribe or you're talking about a casino in you know, Connecticut or Rhode Island or wherever, yeah. you ultimately have a lot of money 
that's at stake here. And the part of the problem for the tribe, and I think you pointed this out, Paul, in the article, is that if they don't yeah, go through yes. with this, is, they're in debt point. to the tune of mm-hmm. so much money that that is another real problem. This is a desperate act for survival. It isn't even almost about the casino anymore because if it doesn't come through, it's not just about losing a casino. It's about losing millions and millions and millions of dollars. And I don't know how the tribe survives. Just to add to that, Arnie, I was interested when I read this article to see Rhode Island's pretty much entire right. congressional delegation, it seems, writing to oppose uh, the yes, green lighting of this casino. Thank you. Because if casinos in Rhode Island, and they write in what I would say is probably not their finest hour, River and Tiverton casinos in Rhode Island generate over $300 million in revenue, representing the third largest source of revenue for our state, which is mind-boggling, yeah. but also mm. like, what mm. did Rhode Island do before these casinos? How did we, exactly. you know, we're so we're so dependent on this money. It, it's just a, an image of, of where we are today. And just one note, the president apparently tweeted uh, in his opposition to this bill that it, quote, doesn't treat Native Americans equally. I'm not sure what he was referring to, but in case <laughs> anyone uh, is thinking he's acting line. in good faith, I, yeah. would, I would encourage you to go back to the videos online from the 1990s when he was testifying regarding Native American casinos and said some really disparaging things toward Native Americans. And I would just like to add this one last bit of context that the Mashpee Wampanoags literally for decades pursued federal recognition to be recognized by the government the quote-unquote right way. They did it straight. They did it without, you know, uh, papering hands with money and lobbyists, mm-hmm. and it didn't work. They kept running into roadblocks. They never got any traction. So they finally, and it was a, a huge debate, and frankly, it still divides the tribe to this mm-hmm. day. They decided, we're going to go with the money. So we, we, we have casino interests that, you know, are, are deep pockets and powerful lobbyists, and we're going to get our recognition. And so they finally got what they wanted and celebrated in, in a huge way in the mid-2000s when finally the government said, yes, you are who you say you are. And fast forward, that came at a cost, and that cost is, is a bill they're still trying to pay today. Yeah, that's right. If you're just tuning in, this is Under the Radar with Callie Crossley. I'm Callie Crossley, and here with me are Arnie Arneson of The Attitude with Arnie Arneson, Paul Pronovo, executive editor of the Cape Cod Times, you just heard him, and Providence-based freelance journalist Philip Isle. We're discussing all the New England regional news you need to know. Up your way, Arnie, Governor Chris Sununu decided that, well, he's told everybody beforehand that he was going to veto a family medical leave bill, even though the stats are that 78 percent of the people in the state are in favor of it. First, let's hear this cut from his talking to host Trish Regan on uh, Fox Business. This is New Hampshire Governor Chris Sununu. No income tax, no sales tax to live for your die state. I'm You're the not first. Let them do it. Oh gosh, no! Um, <laughs> for the first time in history, they're putting an income tax on my desk. I can't wait to get home and veto it <laughs> with pride. Oh, there it is. Yeah. The bloody shirt, the income tax. Let me whip it out. Whether it's true or not, who cares? Suggest that it's going to happen. This is so unbelievable. Let me just say something that's really interesting, is that the Republican governor of Vermont and the Republican governor of New Hampshire are actually on the same page about, quote unquote, with air quotes, uh, paid family and medical leave. They don't want to extend it to the entire state. They want to start with the state employees, and they want to make it voluntary so people can sort of opt in or opt out. Well, the problem is you and I both know that under the concept of insurance, Mm -hmm. 
opting in or opting out doesn't usually work. And what we see, uh, and you actually, yep. I think, believe just passed it in the state of Massachusetts, you now have family and medical leave paid for in Massachusetts. I believe it kicks in in 2020. So there's a couple of interesting pieces here. We have 100,000 people that live in New Hampshire. They guess what? They work in Massachusetts, which means those 100,000 people, if they have an issue with a parent or a child or having a new baby, they will be able to access paid family and medical leave because their employer has it in Massachusetts because they've been enlightened and your Republican governor agreed with the legislature that this makes sense. It's a family value with low unemployment. You really want to make sure that you can retain employees. And frankly, if you have to choose between keeping your job or taking care of someone that's ill, it's kind of like Sophie's choice. Which one do you choose? So this is the first time ever in New Hampshire history that the legislature was able to pass something. They worked with 200 businesses. They worked for months and years. It is in no way, shape, or form anything in the way of a tax. It could actually piggyback on unemployment compensation. It could, there's a whole variation on the theme. The employer could pay it. The employee can pay it. But it has to happen. And if everyone has it, then every small business will not be afraid of having this as part of their remuneration package because they know it's a level playing field. And as you just pointed out, nearly 80% of the New Hampshire electorate wants it. What Chris Sununu is doing is using this idea of voluntary as if voluntary has ever worked. And he's also making the suggestion of a tax. Well, it may be a a predictable Mm. retaliation. It's just not truthful. And that's unfortunate. And it's also interesting, just to put this out there, Chris Sununu, we thought, might be running against Jean Shaheen in 2020 because she is up for re-election for the U.S. Senate. And it turns out that he has just decided this week to run for governor again. So this is mm. going to be a very provocative mm. issue for him, uh, especially in light of the fact that you saw those huge polling numbers and a lot of employers wanted it, but they wanted everyone to participate because as once you make it a voluntary situation, then a lot of businesses are afraid to exercise the option. Uh, Philip, what's happening over in Rhode Island with regard to paid family leave? Well, I actually don't know what the current state of paid family leave is in Rhode Island, but I was struck by something just about the the dialogue here, which is when you hear them say no new taxes and live free or die, you can almost buy into it if you just take them at their exactly. word. It sounds okay, but it, because it's so abstract, it's so removed from what's actually going on. I was struck when I read this New Hampshire Union Leader piece, which was simply describing what paid family leave is, how much more vivid uh, the idea was when they say uh, these reasons include caring for a newborn or a newly adopted child or a seriously ill family member, as well as tending to one's own serious illness, which puts uh, Governor Sununu's eagerness to veto this in a very different light when you simply describe what this policy would allow people to do. It's about people caring for loved ones. It's about supporting people at a really vulnerable time. It's quite a different thing from just some arbitrary tax the way he's presenting it. Well, I would argue, Paul, that it always has been wherever it is, wherever these bills have come up, because that's the point. It's, you know, these people are working jobs in which they are making the Sophie's choice and they have made and it's been to their detriment. And that was the reason why in Massachusetts we are just trying to make it possible for people to work and, you know, to have a humane response if they are ill or someone else in their family needs attending to. I think that's true. And while, of course, it was you know, a debate in Massachusetts as well, because there is a cost associated with it. I think the idea passed because in part, in the long game, it's a brick in economic development. If you give people these benefits, 
they're going to be more interested in working here. Companies are more interested in locating here, and, and that is uh, a good thing for the economy in general. Um, I do want to point out also that Chris Anunu's idea of linking with Vermont for the public employees is a bit of a red herring because he's still talking about it, I think, and yet Vermont seems like they're not going to go forward, which was a key piece of this. Yeah, I would agree. Philip? What I was struck by was also something in the Concord Monitor, which zoomed in on who is actually missing uh, these policies right now. They cited a, a UNH study from 2018 that found that 56% of respondents lack access to a paid leave policy and 63% don't get extended paid time off for family care. And they say that lack of access is most present in jobs that pay less than $600 a week. So this policy that's on the table here really affects some people who, who could really use that kind of support. Yeah. Over to you, Paul. This is really interesting about uh, the colleges on uh, the Cape and the Vineyard beginning to uh, shore up some wind workforce workers because they got these grants. It's really fascinating because wind energy and renewables in general represent an emerging business sector. And when you have an emerging business sector, another word for that is brand new. So what do you have in terms of infrastructure? What do you have in terms of employees? What do you have in terms of training? Well, nothing. So you're starting from scratch and you're building from a base of, of somewhat zero. I mean, you do have some folks who have experience, but not a lot. So the idea that the uh, Massachusetts Clean Energy Center, which is uh, on behalf of Governor Bay um, has moved ahead with uh, awarding money to several colleges, including Cape Cod Community College, uh, the Massachusetts Maritime Academy, which is really an underlooked, I think, institution in terms of engineering mm -hmm. programs. You mentioned on the vineyard, it's the adult continuing education. And then over uh, off Cape, Bristol Community College in, in the South Coast area, UMass Amherst, and interestingly enough, the Pile Drivers and Divers Local 56 trade unions um, are all getting a piece of about three quarters of a million dollars uh, to train people for all the installation elements of wind turbines. And this is all because Vineyard Wind has secured the first offshore in Massachusetts waters wind plot. Um, they plan to build 84 turbines south of Martha's Vineyard. It's one of several spots that is essentially zoned for this sort of thing. And as part of their bid, they promised to provide seed money for this sort of training. And so that's what's happening. The governor's administration says this is good news. It means that Vineyard Wind is keeping their promise. They're kicking in about, uh, I think it's in the neighborhood of 250000 of, of the money. Uh, the state is putting in the rest. And uh, this is really going to seed people to have very specific trade training that, frankly, doesn't really exist in the United States otherwise, or at least in this area. It's a win-win because it's a win for the colleges and the groups that will be doing the training, of course, who will receive these grants. And it's certainly a win for people who will uh, learn the trade and have these great year-round jobs as uh Julian Sear, who is the state senator, pointed out, in areas that are resort-focused, um, this can be very important. A absolutely. <laughs> and and get, getting back to our earlier part of the conversation where we are talking about community colleges, two of the institutions benefiting are Cape Cod Community College and Bristol Community College. So here is, they're basically going to start an, an entire education program that doesn't exist there now. And, and it's going to be, I'm sure, very, very attractive to folks who, you know, m maybe they'd be more geared toward trades and, and a vocational education. And now they're going to do that same thing, but in a very specialized way. I'm crying a little about this story. And let me tell you why, Paul. I was a huge supporter of Cape Wind. 
And I covered that story, and I worked with that story, and I remember the big fight they had to put that wind turbine uh, off the coast of, what is it, Martha's Vineyard or what, that area over there. And now to see this is just, it, it's yeah. remarkable, the transition, where they're actually talking about training workers, and they're talking about the number of turbines that are going to be happening. And in a lot of ways, I just want people to know that, you know, in the beginning, the struggle is so hard. It's about acclimatization. It's about recognizing that the, this really is about our future. It is the, the fear of the turbine is now sort of diminished. Now everybody is beginning to realize that this really has to be part of our energy mix. But as I read it, remember that huge, huge fight. It went on and on and on. And now look at where we are. You know, they were ahead of their time. And at the same time, someone had to begin to sort of begin the story. Rhode Island wound up sneaking in and getting the first offshore right. wind farm because I did. wrote that exactly story right. from Rhode Island exactly. Magazine. <laughs> I want to echo the enthusiasm here. I think this is so it exciting. Is. It's a new economic sector that so we don't perhaps in the future have to rely on all that gambling money. This area of the country, which is still very much post-industrial, trying to figure out its its new identity as Rhode Island is, this would be such a morale booster if we could really get some of the momentum here. But I do want to note that one thing I realized or learned when I wrote that article about offshore wind off Block Island was that this is all happening for the first time here. But in Europe, they've been doing this for years. Offshore wind oh, yeah, is not yeah, a course. new thing there. It's just for whatever reason here here in the States, uh, we're a bit slow. We're, we're playing catch up. On so many levels. Well, yes. <laughs> just, well, I think also yes. uh, dependency drives innovation. And that's certainly the case in Europe where they don't have mm-hmm. uh, some of the energy sources that are native mm-hmm. to the United States. And, and so they were frankly compelled, I think, to move forward with renewables at a faster pace than and here, uh, we are catching up. But getting back to what Ar- Arnie was saying, and you're absolutely right, Arnie, the, the debate over Cape Wind was tremendous. Um, I think the term you used is exactly right. Exactly. Um, they were ahead of their time. And, and they were literally ahead of their time in terms of when they were proposed there was not yes. any government infrastructure. Literally, government agencies were saying, all right, who is supposed to take exactly. this on exactly. and, and walk this through a regulatory process? They all went, <laughs> one, two, three, not it. Mm. And I think the Army Corps of Engineers ended up with it at first, and then the Department of Interior ended up with it next, and they, they had no idea. And now, fast forward to today, they, the lessons learned, this is no, uh, I, I'm sure, consolation to that the developer, Jim Gordon, um, but the lessons learned from uh, Cape Wind were, okay, let's now do what we need to do and they literally have mapped out locations up and down uh, the coast that says here here is an appropriate place here is not an appropriate place here is you know conditions conducive to such a thing here's not and just like you would zone your your town they're now zoning the ocean and and that's why i think you've already seen it in rhode island you're seeing it now off the coast of the vineyard you're going to see another one very soon in this area and and i think this is now the the snowball's rolling well, and i would just uh, put a button on this to say that this also shores up the notion that has been actually implemented many places, even in Massachusetts, which is the use of community colleges to work directly with businesses to you know, provide right. the education and training for jobs that exist and that pay well. So that is Great that's point. happening not only in Massachusetts, but in other uh, places around the country. And um, it's just a wonderful thing to see. Um, I think, uh, and and a good support of community college. Well, Jim Gordon, Jim Gordon from Cape Wind should be getting a Profiles in Courage Award. I'm just telling you, Kennedy School, are you listening? <laughs> yeah. I just because, because as you pointed out, he really did in a lot of ways. Without him, where would we be today? Because I think a lot of things uh, were exposed that would needed to respond. And now look where we are. His vision is actually.
actually become a reality. And I think that's terrific. Over to you, uh, Philip. Uh, we have been in the midst of uh, this last week with uh, stories around the country about abortion mm. rights bills, anti-abortion bills. And in Rhode Island, uh, you were in the midst of it. Let me just uh, play a little bit of what was happening at the Rhode Island State House. This is these are demonstrators on both sides of the abortion rights bill. So that was the response after the committee vote was five to four against a bill that would have protected the legality of abortion in Rhode Island. And this is, you know, hoping to be a block against those encroachments against Roe v. Wade. Yeah, a bill that was passed by the House. Uh, it, it has now stalled in the Senate. And um, I'm not sure what happens from here. This was certainly a major setback. It, there's a lot you could point to here. I think for me, one of the takeaways is yet again, Rhode Island appears to be this deep blue state, you know, where it dominated in both the houses of the legislature by Democrats. But it is often not quite as liberal as it may seem. Here we are bringing up the trail end of states to legalize recreational marijuana in New England. We may or may not do it. It's finally coming to the table. We were the last state in New England to legalize gay marriage. And here you have, you know, what would appear to be kind of a slam dunk protecting um, access to abortion uh, in Rhode Island. And and it's not a slam dunk at all. Also, perhaps and if part of this is because Rhode Island is a deeply Catholic state. And as the Providence Journal noted, uh, outspoken local Bishop Thomas Tobin tweeted, still counting on the Senate Judiciary Committee to reject the radical pro-abortion bill being considered today. It's undeniable that it goes way beyond Roe v. Wade. So he had come out definitely in opposition to this. Meanwhile, uh, Rhode Island just seems to be <laughs> finding its way into the national dialogue. Uh, I was reading about this story and saw that the actor um, Alan Cumming, who has over 200,000 Twitter followers, tweeted earlier this week, amidst this week's onslaught of abortion bans, Rhode Island can pass legislation that would protect abortion rights. Join me in urging RI Senate to respond to the national outcry against abortion bans by giving the RHA a vote. So it's unclear what happens from here, but you know this this battle is uh, alive and raging in Rhode Island right now. Okay. Well, I want to move on to something in uh, New Hampshire. The Senate unanimously passed a bill to eliminate the statute of limitations for civil cases of childhood sexual abuse. This seems to be incredibly uh, powerful, Arnie, because so often people finally get to the point where they can talk about these things, and then there's a statute of limitation, and they can't file any charges. Well, actually, it was in the state of Vermont, but it's 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 a it's a very yeah. important piece mm-hmm. of legislation, mm-hmm. and um, they 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 removed the six year statute of limitation that's currently in place in civil suits. And one of the things that we need to remember is that uh, when it comes to child abuse, it sometimes takes. 10, 20, 30, 40, 50 years for people to sort of acknowledge what has happened and to be able to sort of both articulate it and then to attempt to do something about it. So the statute of limitations has no role to play in these kinds of, st- of situations. And I'm just going to bring up another headline from or the LA Times. Or should not have a role, but they have had a should role. Not. That's my point. Oh, forever, right. I want to bring a headline up mm. from, the, from the San Francisco Gate. Ready? Stunning toll of Boy Scout sex abuse. More than 12,200 mm-hmm. reported victims. Now, these stories have been percolated 
speculating for a long time. We are now, I feel like, you know, pulling the scab off and finding out how long it has been going on, how the same person might have perpetrated not just one abuse, but 20 abuses. That they, you know, these are stories that go back 30 years. People are finally finding their voice and able to tell their story. This is the problem with child sexual abuse. The operative word here is child. And I think that's why the state of Vermont decided to remove the statute of limitations. And I understand the concern of some people who said, look, what if it was a worker from 1988 and we've changed and yada, yada. The problem is if you want to sort of provide an exception for that one employer, think about all the other people you have now abandoned. And I think uh, it has been too long that we have ignored the situation, whether it was the Catholic Church, whether it was the Boy Scouts, no matter what it is. When you are talking children, you cannot talk about a statute of limitations because they cannot acknowledge in a timely fashion, at least a timely fashion as the law historically had wanted it. Yeah, I think that's good. All right, I have a few seconds left, Paul, and I want you to talk about this humpback whale that washed up on the Sandwich Beach that is now going to go to the museum, it seems. It, it is indeed. And, you know, it's interesting because this whale had been a very popular whale out in Cape Cod Bay um, and around the edge of Provincetown for many years. You know, whale watching votes were uh, boats and visitors were well familiar with Vector, um, a 40 ton humpback whale. Uh, and Vector, unfortunately, uh, passed over the weekend and last weekend and washed up on the shore of, of uh, one of the beaches down in Sandwich, just outside of Town Neck Beach. Um, beautiful whale, fascinating for people to come and see it up close uh, now on land and, and really get a scope of just how big it is. Um, of course, logistically, it was so big, it was hard to get off that beach and get to another spot where they could uh, perform a necropsy. Um, and that basically is determining the cause of death. Um, sadly, uh, for humpbacks, though they're not endangered, uh, there's been an increasing number that have been dying from ship strikes. So that's why they control the speeds and uh, the navigation places for uh, uh, vessels. Um, the 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 uh, vector is going to live on in some way, uh, moving to uh, the main state museum, um, where his skeletal skeletal remain will uh, be paired with uh, a calf uh, humpback. And it's it's really if you've ever been and seen a whale skeleton, whether it's in the New Bedford Whaling Museum or other places, it's incredible how big they are, and it really does help you appreciate um, the magnitude of of uh, these animals and really how tied we are to our oceans. And it's really, you know, something that is 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 so Cape Cod. I mean, you know what I mean. Yeah. It's really it, it's it's the it's the legacy and the and the history and all of that flavor of of Cape Cod as well. So uh, for all those reasons, I'm glad they're able to preserve that skeleton and uh, look forward to seeing that in the museum. Quite a fish story. Uh, I, I, it is a fish story. It's a big fish <laughs> yeah. story, by the way. Ha ha. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you all for joining me today. Thanks, Kelly. It's a pleasure. Thank you. Arnie Arneson is host of the Attitude with Arnie Arneson from WNHN. Philip Isle is a Providence-based freelance journalist, and Paul Pronovo is the executive editor of the Cape Cod Times. Coming up, this is the era of makers, and no one knows that better than the founder of the greater Boston-based small maker marketplace, The Gromit. Since 2008, Jules Pieri has seen over 3,000 innovative consumer products launched. In her new book, How We Make Stuff Now, Turn Ideas into Products That Build Successful Businesses, Pieri pinpoints the factors that can help small makers be competitive in a marketplace ruled by the big retailers. That's next. This is Under the Radar with Callie Crossley. I'm Callie Crossley.
I'm Callie Crossley, and this is Under the Radar with Callie Crossley. And now for the part of the show we call Lanyap, that's Creole for something extra. In a world seemingly dominated by online retail giants, the notion of independently developing a sellable product is daunting. While crowdfunding platforms like Kickstarter may help get pitches off the ground initially, the road to profitable business is a little more murky. Demystifying this process is the aim of how we make stuff now, turn ideas into products that build successful businesses. A new book from Jules Pieri, CEO of The Gromit, a locally based marketplace supporting small product makers. Jules joins me now in the studio. Hi, Jules. Hey, Callie. Glad to have you. Also joining us is Chad Lorenz, co-founder of the Boston-based home security company Simply Safe. Hello, Chad. Hi, nice to be here. I'm glad to have you. Jules, what motivated you to write the book? After 10 years of launching 3,000 products and watching these heroic companies solve all the same problems in isolation, I said, let's get this in one place. So many lessons learned. Let's help the next generation of makers. And I'm so glad you said the word makers because, you know, I was accustomed to thinking of people that built things as inventors. So somewhere along the way in the last, I don't know how, what years, it's now makers. And it has, it's, I thought it was kind of a term of art for more arty people, but it's means something else now. It has ascended, and I waited a long time for a word that would cover the range of these folks and the, their businesses. And it's definitely been the best one that's emerged. Inventor says you might never get out of your garage. Maker hmm. to me encompasses the business as well, if you so choose. And does it also have that sort of art flavor to it? I don't know. It, that's, that's what comes to mind for me. Um, I think that's actually a little bit of a downside to the word oh. because, hmm. at least in our world, the products that we launch tend to be manufactured. And so not all people we call makers hmm. would identify themselves as such, to be fair. Maybe Chad wouldn't. I don't know. Mm -hmm. I have, I've never asked you, Chad. <laughs> I, I, How do you feel word, about it? <laughs> the word maker resonates with me. I, I think there there is an element of invention around the, the core product and the innovation that you're bringing to market, but there's so much more to actually getting a product manufactured and getting a business off the ground. There's making throughout. There's making in the business process and the team uh, and your organization. And so I think maker encompasses much more of what it's like to actually get it, get it all the way off the ground and working. Okay. Um, so you say 135 million Americans call themselves makers. Now, how do you know that? Oh, I saw it in a study. <laughs> and, of course, at that, that scale, you're, you are talking about people who might be more in the conventional inventor or home-based sort of craft end of the scale. But certainly, you know, the other end of the scale are the people like Chad and, mm -hmm. and the people we work with. Okay. So you argue in your book that we're in a time that's primarily shaped by technology, which has changed the landscape. I was going to say the marketplace, but it's really bigger than that. It's really the whole environment about who can be a maker and how making gets done. And I wish you'd talk about that. Yeah. The, the fundamental hero here would be indeed the internet, because this is age old to want to create something. But to figure out how to do it was much harder 20 years ago. And now you can... You can Google to get yourself halfway to almost anything, right, to hire a designer, to figure out how to find a factory, to do some market research, to assess the competition. All that is eminently doable on the Internet to a certain level. And then technology swarmed around prototyping and actual production. Certainly 3D printing would be heroic in terms of prototyping. So now... On the Gromit, which I want you to explain exactly what the Gromit is and how it works, you've seen 
untold numbers of products. 300 uh, a week. <laughs> and you settle on only six out of 300. Yes. Yeah, so we dig in in about 30 every week, to be fair. Okay. Get samples. Oh, wow, that's a big them. difference. <laughs> yes. Unless this is a small number you end up with. Yeah, after, because yeah, at yeah. the end of the day, we need to know that the company is prepared for success and that the, the product delivers what it promised. We cover a range from outdoor gear to pets to kitchen to home security. So it takes a lot of work to make sure the products live up to their promises and the companies are what they say they are. I'm speaking with Jules Pierre. She's the co-founder of The Gromit. I want you to be a little bit more specific because The Gromit is not just products. It's very specific and very different in its approach. And I recall personally, and I should say, I stumbled across when it was The Daily Gromit years ago. And I wouldn't tell anybody because I was like, oh, I found gold. Look at all these products. I love this. That was just totally different. You're uh, breaking my heart, by the way. <laughs> no, I, then I had to tell people because they kept saying, where are you getting this stuff? Uh, but my point is that you, you have a certain uh, a, a way that you look at something to know whether it's really a grommet product. Yes. First of all, it has to be innovative, and it's from a small business. It has to be undiscovered and emerging, and those are the first two uh, lenses. And then, then we're looking for actually truth. Is it true what they promise? So products that your listeners would know that we've launched other than Simply Safe would be Fitbit, SodaStream, OtterBox, um, Bananagram, Swell Water Bottles. So if I say those, you immediately think, oh, that's credible. But they were little companies when we met them, and they needed somebody to help them find their audience and find a receptive population who would help carry their message forward, try the product, tell their friends. That's that's what we do, help tell their story. So helping to tell your story, Chad Lorenz, was a big deal. What did uh, being picked up by the Gromit mean to Simply Safe before I get into what it's all about? Absolutely, yeah. Mm-hmm. So back at that time, we were a very small team, maybe uh, 10 or so people. And, uh, you know, we're, we're pushing upwards of 1,000 today. So this was, this was a ways back. And uh, at that time, we were struggling with how to develop any awareness for what we were offering. We were a, uh, a very small company trying to transform an industry. And it was a big message we wanted to deliver. And it was great to have partners like the Gromit, uh, like Jules, uh, who would help us uh, raise that awareness, get that message out. Uh, we worked on our first video of what our, our product and our service did with them, and that was incredibly helpful. Uh, I remember working on our first um, interactions with, with journalists and getting our first coverage in the news media we worked on together. Uh, and it was just helpful having a, a network of, of entrepreneurs. A serious uh, guide. That's right. Yes. All right, so let's talk about what Simply Safe is. People probably have seen it by now. But talk about entering a marketplace that was full I mean, so you were really brave to jump into this. It has certainly always <laughs> been a competitive industry with with a lot of options. Mm-hmm. So tell tell everybody what Simply Safe is, and then and then what you were up against, and and how you competed. What we saw was that in the home security industry, there there were a lot of options, and there continue to be a lot of options, but many of them weren't very good. There were uh, a lot of traditional companies, who, in our view, weren't very consumer friendly in their practices. They were locking people into long-term contracts three, four, five years long at very high prices. And they were using fairly strong-arm sales tactics where they wouldn't even tell the customers the prices up front. You had to have somebody come into your home before you could find out what it would cost. They'd create all this friction in the way of getting home security, which in our view was this critical 
life-saving service that we wanted everyone to be able to have access to. Uh, and so we came up with the idea of not requiring a professional installer anymore, that you could buy our system online, you could research it ahead of time, it would be all transparent, the pricing would be transparent, you'd know exactly what you were getting. You could uh, talk with us and our team and our security experts and we could help you get exactly what you needed. And then ultimately you could install it yourself and you would have no long-term contract. Uh, we made it incredibly affordable for our customers. And so we really, we had this mission, uh, we call it Every Home Secure, where we want to bring security and make security accessible for everyone. Uh, and uh, over the years, we really have been um, pioneering that model and transforming the industry where uh, when we started, uh, almost no one purchased an, an alarm of the type that we have. Then when no one self-installed the security system. And today we think about 20% of the country does um, on, on new additions. So we've really, we've, we're still at the beginning of this journey, uh, I feel. We're just getting started, uh, but we are transforming a, a really important industry. Uh, that's my guest, Chad Lorenz. He's co-founder of the Boston-based home security company, Simply Safe. Now, what made you interested in solving that problem, this home security problem? Because as Jules has said, that's really sort of where makering comes from, if I can make up a word. People, you know, have product ideas, but they're really trying to solve some problems. I, I think, as is so often the case, it came from personal experience. Uh, three of my friends were burglarized in the space of about a month. And I kept having these conversations again and again with each of them where they, they felt vulnerable, they were very upset by this as is natural, and they wanted to get a security system. And I noticed that none of them did. Mm -hmm. And they all had these experiences where they called a traditional provider and had a bad experience with that. It was expensive, it was a hassle, it wasn't an easy process for them to go through. It wasn't a value proposition that they were willing to sign up for. Hmm. And my background was in electrical engineering, and I'd worked uh, with, with startups for a number of years, uh, and I thought there, there really has to be a better way here, uh, and looked at the market and saw that no one, no one was doing this, uh, saw the opportunity, and took a lot of time to build the product. It took us two and a half years to really build the product and service, uh, launched it, and, and soon after I met Jules, and, and uh, we were off and, and running. So, Jules, one of the things that I've observed in terms of the foodie public, and this is this does connect, <laughs> is that our palates have expanded so much because there's more of every different kind of food now and more of an appreciation from where food comes from. I, I often look at the farm-to-table movement as having really impacted so many other arenas in the country. And so what I when I say that, I mean people seem to be ready to look for innovative products, to be more open to something that doesn't necessarily come from a chain or expected place. So I can be open to a product that you might put forward on the grommet because I've seen that, you know, there are people out here making in this space in a way that has never happened before. That is super insightful, Kelly. That was the bet we made before it was provable, I guess, 10 years ago. And food was a bellwether, actually. I was watching farmers markets. They were growing at that time and continue to grow 11% year over year. And also in big food, in grocery level food, the little brands have taken 19% share in the last six years, market share, 19%. And that's a little surprising, right, because you're putting this in your body, yet people have a propensity 
now or a preference almost to trust companies they've never heard of. And I think it's because the big guys let us down. It's a little bit like Chad's story in security. They've overinvested in marketing, underinvested in product. They've cost cut and they've reduced the quality of the brands and they're tired. And that sort of story is true across very uh, almost all product categories where large companies have dominated. They opened up a flank to the little guys. And the little guys have a much lower bar to meet in terms of success. So I'll give you an example. I met a couple of entrepreneurs who used to work at Unilever. And they proposed at Unilever a line of all-natural kids' personal care, like hair, shampoo types products. And Unilever saw the opportunity. It didn't exist. There was no affordable solution. And they had to say no because their bar, they have a Darwinian view on what could succeed. Mm. If they introduce something new, they have to retire something else. They don't assume they'll take more share. So their bar was $100 million in sales in one year. And that was impossible to prove. The entrepreneurs took their show on the road. They created Fresh Monster. And for them, $1 million in the first year is a massive success. So the hurdle rate's much lower. There's nothing to defend. A little company has no legacy. They're not trying to defend shelf space. And they just go for it in a way that the big guys, they kind of they kind of um, kill their young big companies. They don't mean to, but they do. Mm-hmm. And then I feel more personally connected. And that just, just could be, you know, some personal bias of mine. I also love the fact that Gromit is locally based. So Boston-based, that helps me too. But I just made a little list of Gromit products I've used. I didn't even know you. And I was using this stuff. Love Pop, which, by the way, had a Shark Tank investment later on. Food Huggers, Bees Wraps, Hickey's. Peeps, the tick removal thing. Tickies. Tickies, right. A glass holder thing that I like. I mean, I could go on and on. You you have a grommet, grommet life. I have. I love it. (laughs) I have. I mean, there's just so many things that really appeal to me because, Chad, it appears to me that those people listened to my needs and made something that fit in the space of something that I really needed and didn't know I needed at the time. But the minute the tick thing came out, listen, I ran to Martha's Vineyard with a billion of these things. (laughs) <laughs> because it's so perfect. Yeah, I, I think it's it's one of the most critical lessons, I think, for, for makers is to start with a real user need. And often that's why I think the most successful uh, makers come from some kind of personal experience because they've seen that need firsthand. Um, but that's it's at the center of how we think of our product development today. You know, we're, we're 13 years past that, that founding moment, but we still try to stay very close to our customers. We have our entire call center with all of our customer support and security advisors, and that whole team works in downtown Boston, right beside engineers and marketers and salespeople, because we want to have that really close connection with our customers so that we're constantly hearing what they need, what works well, what doesn't work well, what they might want in the future, uh, because that's, that's the lifeblood of our innovation, is knowing what people actually need, what their problems are, and what we can do to help. Mm-hmm. Chad's already uh, actually you're picking up on something that we see um, starting to spread across every industry, which is this this idea of an end to end experience. Like the minute I learn about the product, whether it's on a website or in social media, there's a um, a tone or a set of values that come across as this is for me, right? And not for everyone, but for that customer. 
And when you pick up the phone or you email that company or you hit them up on Twitter, they respond. And they respond in a human or intelligent way, whatever's appropriate for that brand, this end-to-end. That's what Chad's really saying here. It's not necessarily all about the thing that got made. It's about the company behind Mm -hmm. it and Mm -hmm. how they interact with you. And the promise that they made to you, as you said, you know, if you're going to follow through on that. So, Jules, the name of the book is How We Make Stuff Now. Is this going to be How We Make Stuff From Now On? I would, well, that would be a great ambition because, man, if we can um, cut out a couple years of pain and suffering in a future maker's life or solve a problem for a current one, that would be a wonderful outcome for this book. I noted that in your book you said Shark Tank, which many people may be familiar with, sort of peruses all your people and snatches a few to become potential guests on the show. How do you feel about that? Well, our job (laughs) is to help these makers. So just like with Simply Safe in the early days, helping to to create a bridge to press, when we were like a fly speck and the only people on our email list were like my mother and my brother, I was seeing that happen very quickly, like the media and also retail buyers, like Container Store used to tweet, the grommet is our best source of new products. And I just have to cheer it, right? That's our job to help these folks. I will say, we started a wholesale side of our business Mm -hmm. to help actually sell to the Container Store and other retailers so we could continue on with these products. So we did have a business response to that. But the media side is all good. At one point, and I don't know if you still do, you had a pop-up out or maybe it was a brick-and-mortar out in Natick Mall? Yes, we did okay. at the Natick Collection. Uh-huh. It was a great experience to have that direct contact with customers. And we did it to learn about retail because it, to this day, still 90% of retail is physical. And we have this wholesale business. So we built a store because we honestly have never been retailers and wanted to understand their pain points. We learned a lot about buying for a store, about packaging, about point of purchase support for a product that we wouldn't have known from a digital business. Was that a different customer than the ones that you'd become familiar with? Not my perception, no. Um, I can't say we had massive data to be sure, but I would spend time in the store and anecdotally I would say it represented um, a similar customer. Maybe the one difference was kids would go running in there and <laughs> they wouldn't necessarily know us online. And I did see a lot of kids bring, dragging their parents in or having fun with the products that were on display. Um, Chad, now that uh, you are 13 years in and a big capital M maker, <laughs> not a small M maker, what would you say that uh, Jules has pointed out in her book that you think is essential, like the one or two things that anybody thinking of becoming one and entering in this field should pay attention to? Well, I, I think one of the important things that came through for me was the breadth of what you need to do to be successful as a maker. And I think it can be easy to focus on the upfront part of of actually the product innovation, but it's just as important to think about what's going to follow on. And for a lot of businesses, that ends up being your customer acquisition strategy. How are you going to acquire those customers? How are you going to market? And I think for a lot of of new makers, that part gets lost. Mm -hmm. And your business model is going to be successful if you figure that part out. And if if you don't, if you haven't thought ahead about that, it's quite possible that you'll spend a lot of time up front making this beautiful product but have no way to actually get it into people's hands. And so I think this book does a good job of highlighting that part as well. So I asked Jules about how we make stuff in the future. What would you say? How would you answer that question? Because as you know, her book is How We Make Stuff Now. I think we'll continue to see a progression of technology enabling small businesses and entrepreneurs 
to enable them to bring products to market faster, less expensive, and in new and innovative ways. Uh, so I think the Kickstarter platforms are a good example of that, of enabling people to get very quick market feedback on even before they actually finalize the product, uh, to get very quick market feedback on whether they're in the right direction or not. Uh, I think those, those type of environments need to continue to evolve because there is, I think today there is some danger in those platforms that mm. they give you somewhat skewed market feedback. Meaning? Uh, meaning that the very early adopters that tend to be on those platforms will ask for a certain set of criteria, uh-huh. uh, but the full market is going to need something different. And so you might be led astray, and you might also be led astray a little bit by customer acquisition is very easy there because people are coming to you. You don't have to really market to them, but then you have to graduate from that at some point. But I think those those types of platforms will continue to evolve and be really useful for people getting off the ground. Oh, that's really, that's something I hadn't thought about, but you're, you're right, because I was thinking to myself, how many times have I just gone to the Kickstarter thing and I... I like it because it's the way it is, but that's just me. Who knows if anybody else is going to like it. Yeah, it does tend to be that little bit bleeding edge. Early adopter will take more risk. And the other thing that um, most of the perks there are discounted, so the price isn't representative of the real price in the market. Mm -hmm. So sometimes makers can get a misleading indicator about the, the acceptance of their price because they're not really testing their price. So we like to meet folks kind of just a little bit post their Kickstarter when um, they've learned customer acquisition is really hard. It actually is, can be really depressing. It can be like crickets after that campaign. Mm-hmm. But they've definitely shown some real commitment and grit to get through a successful campaign. They've probably worked out some kinks that we don't have to expose our customer to. They've done that on somebody else's dime, essentially, with you know a, a community that accepts that. So we love finding people after that. And as Chad alluded, there's a panoply of um, services that have developed around that ecosystem. For instance, there are enterprise-level shipping services. One company's called Shipwire, another one's Shipped, because they notice these people don't know anything about logistics. They're going to be shipping onesies and twosies in thousands of them. There are all these services that even just the crowdfunding platforms inspired to develop, which are ultimately really helpful to makers as well. Well, I will say the other thing that I like about the Gromit, and I, you know, I've already said earlier that I've long been a user before I even knew you. The comments, people are real clear on those comments. <laughs> if something don't like, they want you to fix it, and they get a good response. So I enjoy reading the response from the makers themselves about, oh, you know, that's you're right, or do this, or don't do that. I mean, it's a, just a, it's a whole community and an exchange, which I believe is the whole point of your book, How We Make Stuff Now. <laughs> so I thank you very much for joining me. Thanks so much, Callie. <laughs> thank you. Thank you, Chad. <laughs> Jules Fieri is the CEO of The Gromit, a locally-based marketplace supporting small product makers and the author of How We Make Stuff Now, Turn Ideas into Products that Build Successful Businesses, which is available for purchase in stores and online now. And Chad Lorenz is the co-founder of Boston-based home security company Simply Safe. Well, that's it for this edition of Under the Radar with Callie Crossley. Join us next Sunday at 6 p.m. for the stories you may have missed. In the meantime, you can find our show, links to stories we discussed today, and bonus content on the web at wgbh.org news. Listen to our show on the WGBH app and take UTR with you. Subscribe to our podcast on iTunes. Be sure to connect with us on social media. 
Follow me on Twitter at Callie Crossley and like us at Facebook.com slash Under the Radar WGBH. Our engineer is Doug Sugarts. Francisca Monahan is our producer. Under the Radar is a production of WGBH. Thank you.